Who said this quote? A house divided against itself cannot stand. If you said Abraham Lincoln, you're correct. The quote came from a speech that Lincoln gave three years before he became president. He could tell that there were deep divisions within the United States over the issue of slavery between the North and the South, and he knew that it was going to come to a point of serious conflict. And so he wanted to get ahead of that conflict and make a plea for unity, for peace, for equality, in order to preserve the Union. But of course, there was a civil war that came to the United States. Over 600,000 Americans died in that war, and just this last week, we remembered the 157th anniversary of that crucial Battle of Gettysburg. I've been reading a biographical book by this author named Doris Kearns Goodwin, who is reflecting on some lessons that we can gain by studying the life of a few different presidents. One of those is Abraham Lincoln. She said that one of the reasons that he was such a gifted speaker, orator, and leader is because he understood human nature. He knew what people did and why they did it. He knew what made them tick. He knew what motivated people. Goodwin also noted that Lincoln loved to read and reread books. A couple of his favorite books were uh, a couple that you might be familiar with, The Pilgrim's Progress and The Bible. Two of his favorite books that he would spend a lot of time in. And it was probably there in the Gospels where Lincoln first ran across that statement, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Because Jesus actually said it first. That's why it was a trick question. And a lot of you guys didn't think I knew that, did you? But I did. You're like, oh my gosh, he doesn't know that Jesus said it first. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get the account of Jesus, who is calling out a demon from an oppressed man. And the Pharisees said, well, if he has the ability to cast out demons, that means he's doing it by, by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. But of course, Jesus responds, and he says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then would his kingdom stand? Well, I think one that reason that Abraham Lincoln understood human nature so well is because he paid close attention to the Bible. He read it closely, he read it carefully. And he picked up on the fact that the social instability that existed in the late 1850s in America was going to lead to serious division. And it's a reality that we see playing out in our text that Toby just read for us from 2 Samuel chapter 20 as well. I want to just briefly set the stage so we can understand where we're at here in chapter 20 so you can understand what's going on. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David saw and took Bathsheba and then he killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah. In fact, it was Joab who killed Uriah, a man who will come up later in our text Joab was the captain of the army. Uh, and then God brings a, a prophet to David who says, hey, listen, you need to understand how awful and disgusting your sin was against Bathsheba and against Uriah. And so David recognizes it, he confesses it, he repents of it. But the prophet says that there are going to be some consequences that he's going to have to face as the effects of his horrible sin sort of trickle through both his house and through his kingdom. And we heard about some of the effects of this sin last week when Pastor Josh preached for us on Absalom's rebellion. Absalom was King David's son, and he turned against his father and all those who supported his father and forced him, along with his supporters, out of the kingdom and into the wilderness. 
But God spared David and his army defeated Absalom and his rebel forces. In fact, it was Joab, again, who killed Absalom. If you recall, he was hanging there in his tree by his hair, stuck and helpless, and Joab comes and stabs him. Even after David specifically said, don't hurt the man. So now David's about to return to Jerusalem and take back his throne over Israel. It's about where we're at in our text this morning. But on the way back to Jerusalem, there are, there are uh, some troubles and some strife that are stirring up between these tribes of Israel. The men of Judah, David's tribe, were having trouble with men from the other tribes in Israel. And at the end of chapter 19, which is just before our sermon text, we read that the tribe of Judah and the other tribes were trash-talking each other. Uh, Each of them were sort of going back and forth about who's better because who the king is. You can imagine the awkwardness that probably exists here within these tribes. Some of these tribes supported Absalom. They supported his rebellion. A lot of them were unsure about what was going to be happening next. You know, Absalom's dead now. David was out in the wilderness. It looks like he's going to come back, but he's not there yet. What's going to happen? Who really knows what's going to happen after this rebellion? There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of instability and fragility now in David's kingdom. But God continues to secure and to establish and to preserve David's kingdom despite the attacks that are coming from surrounding nations and even the attacks that are coming from within the kingdom. God preserves David's kingdom. And so I think the big idea that sort of unifies this text this morning is this. God preserves his kingdom despite its citizens. God preserves his kingdom despite its citizens. Hopefully we can see this truth from our text. Let's pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit as we begin. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for an opportunity to gather. Help us to keep uh, from taking this for granted. We are encouraged by those who have, who have been here this morning, those who are tuning in online, loving the fact that they're joining us here this morning to hear from your word. Father, we are living in tumultuous times, and we need to hear, uh, we need to hear a, a sure word on who you are, who we are, and what your plans are for this world. Father, we know how this story ends, and we should be able to take great confidence in that. Help us this morning to be uh, secure in your unshakable kingdom. Father, we love you. We pray for your help this morning by the Holy Spirit to understand what this text means for us and our hearts and our minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to see three things from this text. And the first thing is this. In the first couple chapters, you can see this. Instability is the foundation of rebellion. You can see that in the first couple of verse there. Instability is the foundation of the rebellion. Now, the ripples of Absalom's revolt that we saw from chapters 13 to 18 are still spreading throughout the society of Israel. The people have been disrupted Uh, much like the seas after a big storm, the foam still rolling around on the water. And the devil loves to fish in troubled water. And a man named Sheba steps into that instability in order to gain a following for himself. Uh, Sheba is described as a man who is a son of Bichri from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And perhaps you remember that King Saul himself was from the tribe of Benjamin too. And so it's possible that there's still some hard feelings over David replacing Saul as the king of Israel. In any case, he senses the tension that exists in society. He blows his horn and he lets out his rebel yell to get the northern tribes to secede from the union. He says, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents. Every man to his tents. This was essentially a call to to separate from David. A call to reject the king. To reject him and to push for tribal authority in their lives instead. This same phrase is going to come up later in 1 Kings chapter 12 when the kingdom of Israel is actually finally fully divided completely. Sheba, though, uses this phrase, this is the first time that we see it, as a slogan, uh, sort of as a piece of propaganda to drive further the division that already exists. Every man to his tents, O Israel. If anything, this might give us pause and teach us that popular catchphrases should be embraced with great caution. Well, Sheba was called a son of Bikri, but he too was called a son of Belial. Our ESV doesn't translate that for us as son of Belial. It says that he is a worthless man. And believe it or not, that is actually a technical term. Literally, the phrase is son of Belial, which is without worth. It's used a few times in different places in the Old Testament uh, to refer to people who are idolaters or people who are just really divisive or worthless folks. It's just a way of saying that he's a good-for-nothing so-and-so. He was just taking advantage of the opportunity. Uh, he's capitalizing on the hatred that exists between the tribes of Israel. And we don't even have a record of, of Sheba trying to make some viable case for an alternative form of leadership of the nation of Israel. He's just trying to tear down what already existed. He says, he's got no right to be our king. He's just the son of Jesse. This is not a divine king who's been anointed by God as our divine king. And people, when they're anxious, when they're unsettled, when they're part of a crowd, they will do things that perhaps they would not do individually. Uh, Folks who would ordinarily be law-abiding citizens, if they're found in the middle of a riot, might become a willing part of that angry mob that vandalizes property or gets into fights. It's the madness of crowds. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. It's not logical. It's madness. But people who are anxious and people who are unstable can be manipulated, and they can be stirred up into thoughts towards thoughtless rebellion. It has more to do with the influence of certain charismatic leaders like Sheba than it does about any particular convictions in the people themselves. Just think of the crowd that wanted Jesus crucified. Do you recall what happened there? The chief priests and the elders convinced the crowd, they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, the murderer, to be released instead of Jesus. And Pilate said, why? Uh, What evil has he done? But the crowd, in their madness, shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And he was tortured and mocked as the king of the Jews. And then he was led away to be crucified, even though he was sinless, he was innocent. So here's a challenge that I believe comes to us from this text. We too are in the midst of incredible social instability. We recognize that that's an understatement. I heard it said uh, earlier a couple weeks ago that someone explained that 2020 
had a lot of the highlights of the 20th century all packed into the first six months. 2020 started like 1974 with an impeachment. And then it went to 1918 with a flu pandemic. And then it went to 1929 with a stock market crash. And then it went to 1964 with race riots. And all of those peak moments of the 20th century, those stresses are all packed within the first six months of 2020. We have been shaken. We have been disoriented. We have been disturbed. So may God's word warn us all this morning. Do not listen to the rebel yell of Sheba. Sheba and those who followed him were willing to reject God's chosen anointed king over political issues. Uh, I want to lean in here just a little bit. Listen to this quote from a commentator who's named Payne Smith, who wrote this in 1888, just a little while after the Civil War had ended in America. He says this, the quarrels and disputes of Christian men and women on matters of government and precedence may generate, by degree, feelings of alienation from religion, end quote. Sheba and his followers were willing to be unaffiliated religiously if it meant that they could be free politically. There are countless Shebas out there right now calling for your attention. They're rebel yells trying to get your attention. They're on TV, they are on your Facebook feed, they are in your neighborhood. Take special care whose voice you are willing to follow. If they don't begin with a solid foundation by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, listen to them very carefully with a discerning ear. Don't let the instability that we are experiencing drive you to leave God's chosen king in rebellion. Follow closely and cling to King Jesus steadfastly. Can I just mention uh, in passing that I am glad to be among a people who do this so well at Trinity. Uh, This week marks my first year here in my current position, and although it's had its unique challenges, it's been a pleasure to serve alongside you. Uh, So many of you who tirelessly care for others, for the fame of King Jesus, it is humbling for, for me to watch, to be a part of, and it's encouraging me to, to, to me personally, so keep it up. May we all continue to have faith in Christ's divine authority. May we love him. May we experience the blessings of his reign in our lives and in our church, and may we recognize the worthlessness of his rivals. This Foolish and worthless man sought to divide the kingdom of David. And then just in passing, we see in verse 3 that David treated those women who were publicly violated by his son Absalom during Absalom's rebellion. Uh, he, he treated them as widows. The, he would no longer, they wouldn't be in his harem anymore. Let's put it that way. The Mosaic law required that David would take care of these widows and protect them and to give them provisions. But the next big section of this text has to do with Joab, who is the captain of David's army. Uh, Verses 4 through 13, we see the clash of David's captains. The clash of David's captains. Joab, uh, that guy that we've, we've run into a lot already, runs into and kills his rival Amasa. If you recall, David 
had removed Joab as the captain of his army, and he replaced him with Amasa. And Amasa was Absalom's cousin, so he was the commander of the rebel army. David probably replaced Joab with Amasa as a sign of goodwill for those other ten tribes, sort of gain some uh, sway with them. Probably it was in part to get Joab out of that role, because I think maybe you've noticed, but Joab is kind of a loose cannon, this guy. In any case, David tells Amasa to take three days and to get an army together and chase down Sheba so they can put an end to this threat and to do it quickly. And so Amasa leaves to prepare the army, but he doesn't come back in time. David gets concerned, and then he replaces him with Abishai. Now, Abishai is the brother of Joab. So now Abishai and Joab are leading a small army, and they're going to go try to put an end to Sheba and his rebellion. They're going to chase him through Israel. And along the way, they run into Amasa, that first captain that David had appointed. So Joab walks up to him like he's just going to go in for a regular greeting. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? And at the last second, shoves a sword into his stomach and kills him in cold blood. Joab, from the time when he is first introduced in this narrative, is presented as a strong character. He has great natural abilities, a great force of will. He's clearly able to take charge of situations. He has strong passions, and he seems to be ruthlessly loyal to David. The problem is, though, is it seems like he's crazy. He's a bit of a, a loose cannon. He's very unpredictable. Uh, and Amasa had just recently led a rebellion against David, and Joab might be even feeling a little bit bothered and embarrassed by the fact that he's been replaced by Amasa. But it's important to note here that Joab is the sort of man who lives by the sword. And he would eventually die by the sword. These Old Testament narratives are amazingly graphic in their description of the, the fallout of what happens after Genesis 3. It doesn't sugarcoat the bloody aftermath of Adam's fall. And we have to be really careful not to read these passages and take them as examples for what to do in our own time. This violent murder was an act to preserve God's kingdom and God used it, but this is not honoring to God. We know that David in many ways foreshadows Jesus. Hopefully at this point in the sermon series, you've picked up on that. But I think it's helpful to contrast what we find in David with what we find in Jesus. So if you recall, Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, was praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And Judas approached him, one of his disciples, and kissed him as a sign of his betrayal. And the soldiers try to arrest Jesus, and when Peter, who is that passionate, sometimes unthinking man, tries to preserve Jesus' kingdom by drawing a sword to kill the soldiers in the garden, Jesus stops him. He says, all who take the sword die by the sword. Do you not think that I could appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legion of angels? I love to see the confidence that King Jesus has in the face of this rebellion. He knows that his kingdom is not of this world. And even in the face of death, he trusted in the promises of his father. We don't have explicit reasons that explain to us very clearly why Joab killed Amasa, but we see clearly that the kingdom of Jesus right now is different than the kingdom of David. The kingdom of Jesus isn't preserved, it is not spread through the clashing of swords, but with words and deeds of love and mercy. 
May we all keep this in mind as we work to defend the kingdom of Christ in the public sphere. True disciples of Jesus don't seek to advance or impose God's will on others through violent means. And we can see this same reality here play out in the verses that follow as well. And the third point, wisdom seeks and secures peace. Verses 14 through 22, wisdom seeks and secures peace. A wise woman in the city of Abel, of Beth Makkah, worked to secure peace for her city and for the nation of Israel, in fact. Joab and his army chased Sheba, this, re- this rebel, to a fortified city that was close to the northern border of Israel. So they really kind of chased him all the way through Israel to the, to the northernmost border of it. And they were setting up a ramp up against the wall in order to attack and to lay siege to this city. And someone who is only described as a wise woman calls out to stop the attack. She said, hold up, you don't really want to destroy this whole city, do you? Do you want to swallow up what she calls the inheritance or the heritage of the Lord? And Joab says, well, no, of course not. I don't want to do that. I just want to capture Sheba. And so this wise woman says, well, we'll just kill him and throw his head over the wall to prove that he's dead. And so she takes this idea to the people of the city and they agree to do it. And after they confirm that Sheba was in fact dead, Joab blows the horn and he calls off the battle. The last few verses here at the end of the chapter give a description of the folks who are in leadership positions in David's kingdom. But the woman that we see here, this wise woman, is not named, but she is described twice in this passage as being wise. Again, just recognize that her Her example of beheading someone is not meant to be an example for us. But there are some characteristics that we can see her embodying that do translate well for us today. She saw this long battle that was coming, no doubt, to her city. And she wanted to do what she could to prevent it. And we're told over and over again in the Bible that we should work for peace. Jesus himself said we are Uh, to be peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James said, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there was one bad man named Sheba who entered into the city and who would have brought about its destruction. But one good woman delivered it from destruction. This is a unique story in a unique time in Israel, but I think we can learn a bit uh, from this wise peacemaking woman. She was observant. She paid close attention to what was going on. She figured out that there was really, at the base of this, there's a misunderstanding between Joab and the city that he's trying to destroy. And she just wants to get it cleared up. Joab just assumed that the whole city was trying to defend Sheba. He should have asked, but he didn't. He just assumed that he knew what their motivations for their actions were. And he was wrong. But the wise woman sought to understand both parties. Friends, imagine how much grief could be avoided and prevented if we too took the trouble to try to understand one another. Right now, so many of us are on high alert, looking for opportunities to be offended so that we can be seen as victims. That is the goal of so much of society right now. Have you guys noticed this? The more oppressed and offended that you are, the more credibility and sympathy that you can get. But let me give us a challenge. This is radical. Hope you guys are ready for this. This is completely countercultural. This is the opposite of what our flesh wants. 
This is the opposite of what society would have us to do. I have a quote for you from a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs lived in the 1600s in England, and he wrote this brilliant little book called The Bruised Reed about the gentle and tender love of Christ. And in this book, he has this quote. If you're not a note taker, would you just indulge me and write this down somewhere? It would be a good contest amongst Christians, one to labor to give no offense, and the other to labor to take none. It would be a good contest amongst Christians, one to labor to give no offense, and the other to labor to take none. There is wisdom in seeking to preserve the kingdom of God like this wise woman did. This wise woman describes her city in Israel as being a part of the inheritance of the Lord. It's, it's interesting that at the beginning of this chapter, Sheba declares that he has no inheritance in David's kingdom, and yet here this woman is trying to encourage others to see and to value and to recognize the inheritance that they do have in David's kingdom. And when she's done her job, Joab blows his horn and everyone goes home. It's the opposite of what happened when Shiva blew his horn. Friends, foolishness seeks to divide God's kingdom. Wisdom seeks to preserve it. Foolishness seeks to divide God's kingdom. Wisdom seeks to preserve it. The nation of Israel was called the inheritance of God because it was specially chosen. It was set aside by God for himself, and therefore it was specially valued, it was specially cared for. And then in the New Testament, in the first, uh, first Peter chapter two, the church is called God's chosen race, a holy priesthood, a people of his own possession, his inheritance, if you will. Christians are the Lord's inheritance. We're not like Sheba, who renounced his God's anointed king and any inheritance that he had in him. We have an inheritance in the son of David, who is our greater, our perfect, our anointed king. And even as Kevin read earlier in our call to worship text, the reign of King Jesus should end the strife and the hostility that exists between one another. The church is God's possession, God's inheritance, and he's going to protect it at all costs through the unifying reign of King Jesus. And this peace that we experience in the kingdom of Christ should be spread throughout our lives wherever we are found. So give your boss the benefit of the doubt uh, when he does some decision that seems foolish to you. Kids, try to understand your parents before you write them off as old and ignorant. If you've been hurt by someone, even within the church, reach out to them and let them know. You might find out that it's actually the case that it was just a misunderstanding from the beginning. And the tension can be avoided by getting to the heart of the matter. We have to resist this drive towards tribalism right now. We cannot let issues that should not divide us, divide us. Can I get real specific right now? Come on. I have spoken to quite a few pastors who are struggling with what to do with gathered worship in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, Do we open or not? Because if we open, people are going to think that we don't care if anyone gets sick, and they're just going to say that we don't love our neighbor, and then they're going to accuse us of not actually being Christian. But if we don't open, they're going to say that we don't value gathering together as God's word instructs us, therefore we're not obeying God's word, ergo we are not Christians. 
If we don't wear masks, they'll say we're being careless. If we require masks, they're gonna say we're being too constricting. And on every side of this, we can begin to form into tribes on these issues. Separating and turning one another into enemies. Every man to his tents, O Israel. This must not be. And I'm glad to say that is not true by and large of Trinity. I'm so glad to say that there are not tribes of those who are watching from online, who are judging from a distance, those who are here in person. There are not people here in person judging those who are watching it online. Let us continue to fight for unity in these things. Fighting for unity, fighting to listen, fighting to understand, to give the benefit of the doubt to one another. Dear friends, take heart. God preserved David's kingdom throughout turmoil, uh, attacks that would come from other countries that surrounded him and even from attacks from within, from its own citizens. But as Christians, our hope is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, whose kingdom cannot be shaken. There is no shadow of change or instability in his kingdom, even as the foolish kings and nations set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. The leader of this world would try to draw us off of the narrow road, those Shebas who would have us withdraw from Jesus. We take refuge in him and in his unshakable kingdom. His is a kingdom that cannot be divided and a kingdom that will stand forever. So friends, don't let the instability of the society around us take you uh, and your eyes off of Christ. Christ understands, Christ sympathizes, he is trustworthy, he is faithful, he is powerful, and one day his peace will rule over all the earth, and the enemy of God's people will truly be thrown out of the city. Listen to how the prophet Daniel describes the kingdom of Jesus that we can expect when he returns. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let's pray.